0: Loved, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> we are going to be looking at the vast majority of this chapter, verses 13 to 41. It's a bigger chunk than we've taken probably throughout the entirety of our study of the book of Acts. <clears throat> but you're going to hear similar themes as we make our way through. Before I read the scripture, would you... Seek our Father in prayer again with me. Heavenly Father, we come not simply praying, O Lord, because you tell us to pray, but knowing a specific need. Lord, we need you to give us understanding. We need you to shine your light on your truth and help our hearts to embrace it. And we pray for the working of your spirit to teach us of you to show us again the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a longer reading, but I'm, I'm still going to ask you to stand if you're able to do so. <clears throat> Acts 13, starting in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companion set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son, Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel "...to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb." And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. That you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Brethren, please be seated. Well, our previous passage in Acts 13 was full of great encouragement. The Spirit called Barnabas and Saul for a grand mission of preaching Christ in new places, And then the Spirit came to equip them with the word that they would call sinners to repentance. And lo and behold, amidst opposition, still a raw pagan, Sergius Paulus, a proconsul, was converted. Luke was very selective when he told us what he did about the preaching in the synagogues on the Isle of Cyprus. And that selectivity now continues as Paul and Barnabas move into new areas, which is modern-day Turkey. And the ancient cities are mentioned of Perga in Pamphylia and Antioch in Pisidia. Now, none of you probably know where any of that is. And this is why in the back of your Bibles, there are often maps to help you keep track. It may actually be helpful, though the ESV study Bible seems to weigh about 10 pounds, to bring it to church. So you can have a map and you can see it and it's right there for you to see what's going on. Now, amidst the travels of Paul and Barnabas, we don't hear about preaching in every place, though they did that. But Luke here gives us a sample sermon in one spot. And it's of Paul's sermons, the longest one we're going to get. He doesn't tell you everything Paul is preaching. Just remember that. So when you you heard that short sermon that I just read, that's not the whole sermon. Just remember what Luke intends to show us is that the Apostle Paul is preaching in this spot what he was saying elsewhere. And likewise, you're going to hear it's the exact same stuff that Peter had been preaching before. Paul proclaims God fulfilling his promise and bringing a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to say four things together as we make our way through this passage. <clears throat> we begin with a disappointment and an opportunity. As the missionary journey continues to carry the gospel into new places, we start with a disappointment. Now last week we heard briefly, end of verse 5, that Paul and Barnabas, or there it's written Barnabas and Paul, had John to assist them. This is John Mark. But as they move from Paphos on the Isle of Cyprus well over 100 miles north to the southern shore of a region called Lysia, again, modern-day Turkey, and then shot up the river about another 12 miles to Perga, we now get some bad news. End of verse 13. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, the word Luke uses here, left them, simply means to depart. It was obviously... John Mark's choice to leave, and he did. But Luke assigns no blame right here. But when the issue comes up again in Acts chapter 15, it is the source of significant controversy between Paul and Barnabas, and there the word is stronger. Paul says that John Mark withdrew, as in deserted, Abandon is actually the Greek word from which we get apostasy. It's the word Luke uses to describe the rocky ground here. Remember Jesus talks about a sower sowing seed and He's talking about the heart, how the Word takes root in the heart or doesn't take root. And the rocky ground here can receive the Word, but there's no ability for root to grow because of rocky ground underneath. And this rocky ground here when the trouble comes because of the Word, he falls away. He abandons the truth. That's the sense. Now, we know that John Mark later in life will serve both Peter and Paul. In fact, he is the author of the Gospel of Mark, which recounts Peter's eyewitness testimony. Paul will later say, Mark is useful to me. He, he's a helpful gospel laborer but right here John Mark ditches both Paul and Barnabas why does he do it well Luke doesn't tell us and this is a spot where commentators love to speculate there are as many there probably more but as many as seven suggestions from homesickness to being anger over the previous leadership structure, which was Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul. And now we hear verse 13, it's Paul and his companions. Paul is in the leadership position. Brethren, this is one of those spots where God has not chosen to reveal why John Mark left. The reason for defection is a secret thing. But the fact of defection is, Is not John Mark left them and whatever construction you put on it. It ain't good. This is a disappointment. Mark will repent of whatever the issue was. He will come to put his shoulder to the plow. But perhaps we should all recognize right here that sometimes God's people are not as faithful as they should be. Sometimes we fail to count the cost. We have thin skin for whatever reason. And we don't persevere in our responsibility. There is forgiveness for those who fall if they turn again to Christ. But John Mark's desertion should be a warning to us all. Watch yourself. Don't commit to the service of Jesus Christ half-heartedly. Don't allow trouble or worldly distraction to drive you away from living for Christ. That's going to be a temptation that all of us face, to be enamored with other things rather than the Lord. But brethren, we have to have determination. As Paul will one day put it to the Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Have a tenacious, persevering spirit. That will let nothing drive you back and keep spending yourself for the sake of Christ. That's not just a principle for the preacher. It's a principle for all of God's people. Let none of us be found shrinking back. Now thankfully for John Mark, he's going to recover. But the parable of the rocky ground here reminds us that some never do. That should frighten us we could have a love that grows cold and then drift away to destruction you got to determine to fight that to keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us so that we would give ourselves for him and love him with fervency as hebrews 12:3 reminds us in the midst of trying to persevere the author of hebrews says Guys, keep your focus on Jesus Christ and remember, you haven't even resisted your sin to the point of shedding your blood. Resist, stand firm, and do it out of love to Jesus. So there's a disappointment. But then with no comment about what is going on, Luke simply shows us that Paul and Barnabas keep going. Look at verse 14. But they, Paul and Barnabas, went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia that's about a hundred miles on foot over mountains and however disappointed they were they don't lose sight of the mission to preach Christ when Satan invades and insinuates hard thoughts when the devil accuses us attacks us provokes shame we got to fight through it trust the power of Christ by the spirit and press on don't allow disappointment to sink you don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed with difficulty and just be paralyzed. you got to press on. Satan is trying to stop you, to stop the progress of the gospel, to stop gospel living. You must resist him. Resist the devil, James 4-7, and what will he do? He will flee from you. Well, that's what they do here. And with their eyes set on Christ, on proclaiming His glory, they go to the synagogue, according to custom, on the Sabbath, and an opportunity opens to them. In the ordinary pattern of synagogue worship, a pattern that shapes New Testament worship, Christian worship too, they read the scriptures. In fact, they read multiple sections of the scripture, the law and the prophets. But not only is scripture read, there's going to be an exhortation. My brethren, I hope it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. What did they do? What did the Jews do when they went to synagogue, the church? the gathering they read the bible and they heard the bible proclaimed exhorted and it will serve as the substance for what paul was going to tell timothy later until i come timothy devote yourself to the public reading of scripture not just read the sermon passage to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching reading the bible in worship is commanded it was a pattern for the people of god Not just in the sermon, but to read it systematically. We need a lot of Bible, not less Bible, which is what's happening in the churches all across our land. Don't take the Bible away from us. Give us more Bible. That's what we need. Well, that's the pattern here. And in this case, by some means that we don't know, it seems clear the synagogue leadership know that Paul and Barnabas, fellow Jews, were teachers. So the rulers of the synagogue conveyed a message, verse 15, "Brothers." They see Paul and Barnabas' as fellow Jews. The radical split between the Jews and Christians hasn't occurred in this area yet. <clears throat> Brothers, if you have, or more literally, if there is in you any word of encouragement for the people, say it. What an entree for the Apostle Paul to speak. Paul is a man ready to give the reason for the hope within him He's ready to preach in season and out of season. Anytime God opens a door, He's ready with the Gospel. Now, all of us are not called to always be ready to preach. Every Christian shouldn't have a sermon just in your file, ready to pull out in case you get the opportunity to exhort. But what happens here teaches us, doesn't it, about the most making the most of every opportunity? If someone asks you to encourage, do you have a Scripture? that you can speak? Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly, Paul will say in Colossians 3. Are we in the Word to such a degree that we're ready to testify of Christ? Whether that be gossiping the Word or preaching, if that's our calling. Do we have such a burden to share the Word? It's really interesting the way the synagogue rulers put it to the Apostle Paul. If there is anything in you That is, if you have a burden to speak, if there's a fire in your bones, tell us, exhort us. Paul, as every Gospel preacher should have, he he burns in his soul to speak of his Savior. He's looking for a shot to testify of Jesus. There will always be disappointments in ministry and disappointments in life. But we have to press on, but not just press on, we have to be ready to declare the Word of Christ. And Paul is. May it be so with us. But then secondly, see with me, as the sermon begins, we hear a history of God's grace. Paul stands up, he motions with his hand. Maybe it's a gesture to to quiet the people, or maybe it's a gesture to focus their attention. As a guy who moves his hands a lot in preaching, I really like this that Luke mentioned it. And four times in Acts, Luke will mention Paul doing something with his hands. That's interesting. Preaching is a whole body exercise. The whole person is engaged. The mind, the heart, the hands, as David Strain once put it, a friend of mine, you preach your socks off, right? Preachers shouldn't stand in the pulpit like a statue and give dispassionate words. The preaching of the Word of God has to be in them, touching them. That's the sense. And why is Paul touched? Why is he moved? Because of the amazing grace of God. And he conveys that grace to two groups. The men of Israel, the Jews, and you who fear God, Gentile god fears. Paul then takes us on a journey from the time of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way to John the baptizer. And I want you to see his emphasis. Because almost every single verb in the section has God as the subject. Verse 17. The God of this people, He chose our fathers. Why did God choose them? Not because they were righteous. Abram was an idolater at the ripe old age of 75 and God yet called him. God chose them because He determined to set His love on them and He loved them because He loved them. Deuteronomy 7. And what did this gracious God do with the people? Verse 17, He made the people great during their stay in Egypt. They came to Egypt as a band of 70, a dysfunctional bunch with multiple wives and family friction. You would not have wanted them to be your neighbors. And yet God kept His promise to multiply them. And then when Egypt oppressed them, what did God do? With an uplifted arm, He led them out of it. God sent plagues. He parted the sea. He provided for their needs. And how did they respond to this amazing grace? They grumbled, doubted, and disobeyed. And yet what did God do? Verse 18, For about 40 years He put up with them in the wilderness. Israel deserved to be struck down because of their sin, but the Lord kept them, preserved them, and He raised up a generation to enter the land. And as you read the Old Testament, brethren, aren't you amazed by God's patience? He kept putting up with them. Now, that doesn't mean all escaped his judgment. Some were afflicted, some perished in unbelief. But even when believers sinned, like Moses when he was mad at the people and he struck the rock, God still bore with his people. Brethren, this is what our Father is like He puts up with us, He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. That doesn't excuse your sin. Oh, God will just forgive me anyway. No, His kindness should lead you to repentance. But is that what we see with God's people? Unfortunately, no. God destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He gave Israel the land as an inheritance. They weren't worthy of the gift. He gave it out of His gracious heart. But how did they respond? They ran after idols. They pursued their love of sin. So God would just give them what they deserved then, right? Well, no, He raised up judges to save them. He led them all the way to Samuel. But even with Samuel as their judge, they rejected the Lord again by asking for a king. Now, royalty wasn't wrong in and of itself. The problem was Israel wanted to replace the God they couldn't see with the king that they could see. And then God gave them one, Saul. Saul's reign started well and then quickly went to disaster. The Lord would remove him, but then in his display of grace, the Lord raised up not the kind of king Israel asked for, but the kind of king they needed. Verse 22, the Lord said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. What a striking comment that is made of David, because most of us recognize David was a failure. There were many times David didn't do God's will. But brothers and sisters, here's something to remember. Even when David failed, what did he do? He turned, he pled for God's pardon. He did God's will by seeking forgiveness and submitting to the Lord. That's pleasing to God. Is that the way that we live? God receives sinners and He blesses sinners who seek Him. And to David, God gave one of the most remarkable promises in the Bible that He would have a son who would reign forever. And who is this son of David? The history of grace now climaxes in grace. Verse 23. Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Jesus as he promised? Did Israel ask for a savior? No. Did Israel deserve a savior? No again. But God promised a savior and God took the initiative to send a savior who bears the name Yahweh, the covenant God saves. That's what Jesus means. Do you see the mercy of God? And just so Israel wouldn't miss it, the Father sent a prophet, John the baptizer, to prepare the way. And John was preaching a baptism of repentance. Because you don't know you need a Savior until you see the depth of your sin. That's what John was doing. But how is it that this Jesus can save? Who is He? John says, look, I'm not even worthy, though I'm, He's the greatest prophet to come. That's what Jesus says about Him. He's not even worthy to stoop down and mess with the thong on Jesus' sandal. He is greater than anyone can conceive because He is God in the flesh. He's the one who can actually rescue us from the enemies we can never defeat. The power of sin and death, the devil. John will say all of our hopes are in this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now obviously, brethren, Paul's sermon, at least at the start, is a history lesson. But Paul is telling the story of God's people with a radical, God-centered outlook. Paul doesn't buy into the great man theory of studying history. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Some of us seem to do this instinctively. When we look at history, who do we talk about? Great man, great man, great man. We talk about great politician, great military leader, great athlete. That's kind of how we look at the world. Paul says, no, there aren't any great men. There's God in what He has done. Our eyes ought to be fixed on the Lord, on this great God who chose, rescued, led, put up with, made promises to. Why would He do this for such a fickle, stubborn people? Shouldn't we ask that same question concerning our own hearts? Why would He send a Savior for the likes of us? Who among us this morning is worthy of salvation? Examine yourself. None of us. While we were yet sinners. God kept his promise. And that leads to thirdly. Promises fulfilled. Paul, after the history of God's grace, he begins by pointing out verse 26 that to us has been sent the message of this salvation. In other words, he's saying to his hearers, brothers, brothers. We are privileged now to hear of Jesus Christ. We're sinners, and God has not only sent Jesus, He sent a word to tell us about Jesus. Now these people in modern-day Turkey and Pisidian Antioch, they didn't hear Jesus preach. They didn't see Jesus do wonders. But they can still learn of the Savior. They can hear and respond to the message of this salvation. Isn't this the same way the message of the Gospel comes to us? We weren't there. We didn't see Jesus. We didn't hear what He said. We didn't observe what He did. But as the Word comes to us, we can believe in Him whom we have not seen. And we can love Him who only faith can perceive. And as Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You can respond to the message of this salvation. Well, was the salvation accomplished in an unimaginable way? God sent the Savior. What did the Jews do with him? Verse 27, the rulers there didn't recognize him or understand the prophets, but they fulfilled those prophets by condemning him. That's a striking thing to say. Paul is pointing out that the scriptures, the very word you're reading every Sabbath, it says that the Christ would suffer and die. Isaiah 53 is probably in the background. Jesus was despised and rejected of men. He was oppressed and afflicted, though an innocent lamb. And the Jewish leaders, verse 28, though finding no guilt in Him, they couldn't make any accusation stick, they still asked Pilate to execute Jesus. Now how in the world can He be a Savior if He's dead? Well, more on that in a second. But notice the fulfillment extends to Jesus' death, not just His suffering. Verse 29, verse 29, And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree. That should get your attention. All the horrors of Jesus' suffering, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the beatings, the mockery, down to the cursed death of the cross. It was all written beforehand. Psalm 22, 69, Isaiah 50, 53, Zechariah 11 and 12. I'm only scratching the surface. This was God's plan and purpose. That He would save sinners through the death of Christ. He would rescue believers as all of our iniquity was laid on Jesus. And Jesus paid the debt as our substitute. Isaiah 53.10 It pleased the Father, the Lord, to crush Him, the servant. To have the servant die as a guilt offering. And while it may have initially appeared that the Father abandoned Jesus as He was laid in the tomb, some were certainly pondering that, what happened? Evil men killed Jesus, but God. That's a phrase you really got to pay attention to in Scripture. Verse 30, but God raised Him from the dead. He is truly the Savior. Now, how do we know that Jesus was really raised, and this wasn't a hoax, a feel-good story, Verse 31, Jesus appeared to witnesses. And He did this not just once, but over the course of many days. This was not a one-time hallucination because they got into some mushrooms. Do you know how often Scripture talks about the appearances of Jesus? He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women. He appeared to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to James. He appeared to the apostles, all gathered multiple times. He appeared to 500 brothers at once. This is an evangelistic strategy that's laid out for you when you're talking to someone about the Gospel. you got to talk about their sin and you have to talk about the death of Christ for sinners and the resurrection. And it's a real, historical, credible event based on witness-bearing testimony. you got to say these things. To the apostles, He appeared and He called them to be witnesses for Him. And then here's the kicker. For Paul's audience, verse 32. And we, Paul's linking himself with the witnesses, we are in this city preaching, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Friends, do you see what Paul is saying? God fulfilled His promises in Jesus' suffering, in Jesus' death, and now in Jesus' resurrection. God is doing everything He said He would do. This isn't a concocted tale to change the focus away from the Old Testament. No, this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. God has been faithful. And then Paul highlights three texts. Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16. God spoke of a day when His King would sit on God's holy hill triumphing over enemies. Psalm 2. God spoke of a day when the throne of David would again be occupied with sure blessings. Blessings that never fail. Isaiah 55. God spoke of a day when death itself would be overcome as the body of Jesus never saw corruption. Psalm 16. This is a forever king because death itself has been defeated. This is the good news. Good news is the announcement of a triumph, of a victory in battle. It's the news of enemies falling and the days of peace having arrived, and Paul was saying, it's here. Jesus is the focus. God in Christ has defeated the devil, broken the power of death, crushed the curse, and the king is on the throne. And then to press this, Paul reminds his hearers, all these passages weren't talking about David. David's dead. He did see corruption. But Jesus is not dead. He lives. What does it mean? We can have peace, rest, pardon, new life. Because Christ overcame sin and death. He has the power of an indestructible life and there is eternal redemption in Him. You see what Paul is doing? He's showing us that Jesus is the Son and Center of the Bible. Jesus is the yes and amen. To all of God's promises. Jesus is the focus, the sole focus of our hope. He cleanses us by carrying our sorrows and suffering for us. He satisfies the justice of God so that our record of debt, if we trust in Christ, is canceled. Wouldn't it be great if you could get a message in the mail about whatever debt you have? Canceled! That's the case for you spiritually. Your debt is gone if you trust in Christ. You have redemption and God did it all through Christ. Do you see his faithfulness? Do you see the unbroken record of fulfillment? Do you see that no one can thwart the Lord even when they kill Jesus? Because even when they do that, they only do, as the church said back in Acts chapter four, what the father's hand had planned, predestined to take place. Do you see the marvelous way God's grace has been shown? We deserve bad news. And good news is preached. Are you embracing the good news? Well, Paul closes the sermon with really that issue. Action needed, point number four. He applies the sermon. And he gives both an invitation here and a warning. First, the invitation. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Christ has secured forgiveness for all who trust in him. If we rest in the risen Christ, our sins are no more. Now, if Jesus remained in the grave, we would all still be in our sin and there will be no ability to see sin overcome. But Christ has actually purchased pardon for those who cling to Christ. Is that true for you? We're not hearing in this text the mere possibility of forgiveness. To us, the word of forgiveness is proclaimed. You can have forgiveness now. If you trust in Christ, your sin is cast into the depth of the sea and you will never be condemned. Your sin is gone. That's a glorious truth. And then further, Paul says, verse 39, by him, by the work of Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You remember, the Jews had ceremonial washings to try to attempt ritual purity. And they had to keep washing themselves. The Jews had sacrifices that God would receive them, be reconciled to them, their sin would be forgiven, and they had to keep sacrificing. The the law given through Moses was not sufficient to bring you cleansing and to satisfy your debt. The law had no power to give you righteousness and to say to you once and for all time, not guilty. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Christ alone breaks the bonds of our guilt. Christ alone gifts to the believer righteousness. And it's on the basis of nothing that you have done and all of Him. Because nothing you could do would ever be good enough. But if you're in Christ, you're accepted. You're welcomed before a Holy Father. And indeed, you have to understand that Christ frees you from everything the law of Moses couldn't. That means you are not only free from your past sin. And not only free right now in the present, you are free in the future. Your sin can never hinder you from being declared in right standing with God. What a glorious truth. Christ suffered once the just for the unjust that He might bring our souls to God. Do you believe this? Your justification is not automatic. You must believe. And I'm not talking about mere intellectual assent. Acknowledging, okay, these are the facts and I accept them as true. That's part of it. But you have to trust. You have to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking to Him alone to save your guilty soul? Well, that's a really urgent matter because there's a warning you see it? We close at verse 40. I want you to see that Paul is ending the sermon on a downer. That means it can be done. You might not like sermons like that. But it can be done. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Not only did the prophets proclaim the coming of the Savior, they warned of the consequences of rejecting the Lord. Paul is quoting Habakkuk chapter 1 when Jerusalem was facing destruction by the Babylonians. And many of the people believed judgment's not coming upon us. We're the people of God. We've got the temple. It doesn't matter what we do. The Lord will accept us. But God confronts their unbelief with a warning. If you don't turn, I will do a work which you would never believe even if someone tells it to you. What would that be? That the Babylonians would sack the city of Jerusalem, burn the temple, and many would be slain. Paul is applying it to the present. And he's saying, such will be your judgment if you fail to embrace the good news that God has accomplished in raising Jesus from the dead. You see, the earnestness of the appeal Embrace God's Word. Repent or perish. The same thing holds true for us right now. Christ lives. And in Him there is full forgiveness. But if you don't trust Him, you will be condemned. And friend, I say to you today, why would you die when Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Why would you reject a God who's shown grace upon grace upon grace? See His mercy in Jesus Christ to give you peace and come to Him. And if you've come to Him already, come and see again abounding grace. Come again and see promises fulfilled. Come and see freedom in Jesus. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from the power of sin dominating you freedom from the fear of death dragging you down to the pit do you want to be free of that you have it in jesus let's pray together the lord our god we praise you for your glorious faithfulness for the fulfillment of your word we praise you that you are the god of all grace and we pray that you would keep our souls believing by the power of your spirit or if there be any here this morning who don't know Christ. Would you move in their heart to awaken a guilty conscience and cause them to flee to the Lord? For any who do love Christ, Lord, would you stir us to see the wonder that you've forgiven us and reconciled us through Jesus? Help us to love you more and to live to your honor and guard us against ever having a love to you that grows cold. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.